Pavarotti and Scotto, Sutherland and Horn, Carreras and Caballé. Have you ever wondered what makes an opera duo legendary? What stories are behind these musical partnerships? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Opera Duos Part 1. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today we join journalist, vocal coach, and Met Radio commentator Ira Siff for the first of three episodes on opera duos. In this first episode, he dives into the making of some of the most popular operatic collaborations. Thank you. Good morning. It's nice to see everybody. so many familiar faces, too, from past classes. So, today we're going to talk about opera duos. And you know, in the world of entertainment, duos have always been a big thing for the public. Burns and Allen, Martin and Lewis, Abbott and Costello, <laughs> Lucy and Ricky. In the world of opera, it's really no different. Back in the day, that often took the form of rivalries. In Handel's day, they were battling divas as well as battling castrati. They performed together, they competed ferociously. Fistfights would break out in the audience as their partisans competed as well. This went on for centuries and was still the case at La Scala in the 1950s when the Calassiani and the Tibaldiani would outscream each other in the galleries of La Scala. At my first performance of Otello at the Old Met, Leone Riesenich made a curtain speech imploring those who hated her to simply stay away from the performances (laughs) rather than threaten her life. Yes, Riesenich had received death threats when she dared to sing the role of Desdemona in Otello from the fans of Milanov and Tibaldi. On my way home from that performance, as I descended into the subway at 39th Street and Broadway, I saw scrawled in magic marker on the tile wall of the subway station from a detractor of the mezzo-soprano Irene Dallas. It said, Irene Dallas, wash your mouth out with Drano. (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) Passions and partisanships ran high at the opera, akin perhaps only to our last election. Among more compatible opera singers, Duos could mean wonderful artistic partnerships, and there have also been a number of married couples who sang together, managing to be loving both on stage and off. In fact, sometimes more on than off. (laughs) Pache is Mrs. Alanya. In the uh, 20th century, operatic duos became a product of record companies, Gilles and Cornelia, Milanov and Burling, Tibaldi and Delmonico, Callas and Di Stefano, Today, we're going to look at a variety of operatic duos known for their collaboration, and we're going to listen to them sometimes in familiar repertoire for which they're widely remembered, and take an occasional look at one of the lesser-known or less frequently aired 
pairings of a famous duo, highlighting them in slightly different repertoire. We're going to begin with two singers who almost never sang together and yet are inextricably linked due to one single recording of one single duet that they made, uh, and that from an opera one of them never even sang. Enrico Caruso and Tita Rufo were hardly a duo, quite the opposite. Uh, theories abound about why they shied away from performing together, and in fact, Rufo didn't even come to the Met until 1922, the year after Caruso left for Italy and passed away. Uh, Caruso and Rufo exemplified a new kind of singing at the dawn of and through the first two decades of the 20th century. It was a kind of voiced, chest voice-based baritonal singing, even from the tenor, and uh, it was less rarefied, less elegant than the older bel canto style uh, that had preceded it. These guys, though, had legato to spare, and uh, they came from Verdi and Verismo, so they came from bigger orchestras, and they had to make a bigger noise to carry over those orchestras. Putting these two together guaranteed rivalry in terms of powers, but also in terms of salary. By the time you paid Rufo, and you paid Caruso, and you paid some high-priced diva, the cost was almost as big as the volume. <laughs> we, um, but one day, the two of them strolled into the Victor Talking Machine studio and recorded the great duet Si Pelcel from Verdi's Otello. And from then on, they were seen as a team. They never recorded again, but because this collaboration is viewed as having produced one of the great vocal records of all time, their names are forever linked. So without further ado, we're going to dig into our first duo excerpt. This is C. Pelchel, the great Oath of Vengeance duet from, uh, from Verdi's Otello. And uh, it tells you on your, on your handout when it was recorded. I think it's 1914. Um, and so we're going to be listening to an acoustic recording, which I'm going to be playing on an iPhone. So we're going to have a kind of a collaboration of rudimentary technology with very sophisticated technology and explore the wonders of how I can't operate it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
While we're on a powerhouse trail, let's remain there just uh, switching to the parallel female version, soprano and mezzo from tenor and baritone. Uh, Gina Cinia was born in France in 1900 to parents of Italian origin, and she trained as a pianist at the Paris Conservatoire, studying with Alfred Cortot and graduating with a gold medal. She then started a career as a piano recitalist. But then she met a French tenor, Maurice Saint, whom she married in 1923, and following his advice, she turned to singing. She took private lessons with Emma Calvé, with Heraclea Darkley, who was the first Tosca, with Rosina Storchio, who was the first Butterfly. But Chinia was mostly self-taught, and she made her debut under the name of Ginette Saint uh, in 1927 at the Teatro alla Scala as Freya in uh, Das Rheingold. Two years later, still at La Scala, after not causing much of a sensation at her debut, she re-debuted, but this time under the name of Gina Cinia. And she sang the role, I think the Italians like that better. <laughs> and she sang the role of Don Elvira in Don Giovanni, and this time she had a great triumph. And a few weeks later, she appeared as Elizabeth in Tannhäuser. She was to sing regularly at La Scala until 1945, quickly establishing herself as one of the leading dramatic sopranos of her day in operas like Trovatore, Ballo in Maschera, La Forza del Destino, Aida, Chenier, Tosca. She recorded Norma in 1937, complete, I think the first complete recording of Norma, and she made the first complete recording of Turandot the year later, 38, with Magda Olivero as Liu. She sang at Paris Opera, at Covent Garden, Lyric Opera of Chicago, San Francisco, and here at the Met, where she made her debut on February 6, 1937, as Aida, and she was also an acclaimed Norma. In fact, a broadcast survives of that. Gina's, uh, Gina Chinia's career came to a halt in 1948 when she was involved in a very serious auto accident, and she suffered a heart attack, and under doctor's orders, she was made to stop singing, and so she, at that point, took up teaching and she died in 2001 at the age of 101. <laughs> now, the mezzo, Chloe Elmo, the other half of this duo, made her La Scala debut in 1935 at the age of 25. And the following year, at 26, she sang Azucena in Il Trovatore there, a role she virtually owned for a time and which served as her Met debut. You know, these days it sounds very young to us, someone 25 at La Scala, 26, but in those days, people debuted young. They didn't have to get a master's in music and then a PhD. 
and then go through some young artist program somewhere and finally get out at 35 and be told they're too old. <laughs> Chloe Elmo's Met debut in 1947, soon after the war allowed diva trafficking to resume. Chinia and Elmo recorded a number of duets, and the most thrilling, certainly the rivalry duet from La Gioconda, uh, which we will now hear. If you're not a Gioconda person, all you need to know is that Gioconda loves Enzo, the tenor, of course, who is a nobleman, but he's disguised as a Dalmatian, the sailor, not the dog. <laughs> but Enzo loves Laura, the mezzo, who is married to the nobleman, Alvise, who is not disguised as anything. Now, the two women are set up by the evil villain of this opera, Barnaba, uh, to have a rendezvous with Enzo at exactly the same moment. So they arrive for this love fest at the same moment, and so, of course, what ensues is a fabulous rivalry duet. So we're going to listen to this Gina Chinia as Gioconda, Chloe Elmo, amazing contralto, as you'll hear, as Laura. This was recorded in 1941. <laughs> Amor que tu te, hoy 
you don't hear chest tones like that anymore, really. And so beautifully integrated to the rest of her voice. And I find it so interesting also after she wallops out all of that incredible uh, stuff. And, and Chinya herself is no slack when the notes go down uh, as well, but uh, as no slouch. But uh, then they both take the B flat at the end after Elmo pours out so many mezzos who have that kind of power down there don't have the power up there. Ferruccio Tagliavini owned one of the sweetest voices of the 20th century, and he was married to the gifted soprano Pia Tassinari, and the couple performed and recorded together a great deal. In the 1950s, Tassinari transitioned to mezzo-soprano roles, which she also sang beautifully. The couple made a number of recordings, lots of recordings together in the 40s and 50s, but they are known for one in particular. This is a case in which a particular piece of music is so associated with certain artists because of a definitive recording that when you say the cherry duet, opera fans will say Tagliavini and Tassinari, even if they don't know a single other recording she made or even what the opera, the duet comes from, which would be Mascagni's L'Amico Fritz, his first uh, opera after his breakthrough hit, Cavalleria Rusticana. L'Amico Fritz, though, is a pastoral uh, opera, charming, no blood spilled, happy ending, the very opposite of Cavalleria. See, in the plot, Fritz is a wealthy Jewish landowner, and he finds Suzel, the daughter of one of his workers, picking cherries. Talk about symbolism. <laughs> they fall in love, and we can hear from the music what, how their, their passions are kind of contained in this very sweet reserve that they are feeling each other out with trying to, to uh, it creates a, an incredible romantic atmosphere. Uh, in order to fit in all the music today, I'm not going to go into great detail about this opera. All I will say is about the singing. If you want to hear a model of style, both in suave bel canto lato and textually pointed Italian verismo, this would be it. It was recorded in 1942, the definitive version of the Cherry Duet, and there are many beautiful versions on recording. Tagliavini, by the way, sang 95 performances at the Met between 1947 and 62. Tassinari gave only six in 1947 in two roles, Tosca and Mimi, and uh, the review spoke about the trouble she was having with her upper register, hence the transition to mezzo-soprano. But in this 1942 recording, the voice, both of their voices, but hers as well, is secure and lovely throughout.
something also very special about that recording is that the duet is conducted by the composer, by Maestro Mascagni himself. So the phrasing is very expansive, which was his way of conducting. He's, I have a live uh, performance of Cavalleria Rusticana from Den Haag in 1938 that's also very broad, very expansive. It allows the singers a lot of expressive room. As I mentioned, beginning uh, as early as the 1930s with the advent of complete opera released on big, heavy albums of 78 RPM records, the recording industry began to create partnerships that would become cemented by the immortality of the recordings. Benjamino Gili, Maria Canelia were an example in the 50s when the LP came along and complete opera could miraculously be contained on only two or three lightweight vinyl discs. There was an operatic explosion of releases from EMI, RCA, Columbia, Decca, Chetra. They began to um, release these gorgeous box sets. But eventually, uh, this went on for decades until computer technology came along and uh, began to make big, expensive to make box sets with booklets and librettos obsolete. And a younger public turned to the computer to find music and not operatic music. In the 1950s, Decca promoted Renata Tobaldi and Mario del Monaco, while EMI featured Maria Callas and Giuseppe Di Stefano. While Tobaldi and del Monaco made many, many recordings together, they also uh, really did sing many performances as well. Tobaldi's Met debut, in fact, in 1955 was as Desdemona in Otello, and Del Monaco was her Otello. The couple had even performed the opera many times by then, including the previous year at La Scala. Uh, in pairing Tobaldi and Del Monaco, and uh, Decca on Decca, and Callas and Di Stefano on EMI, serendipity seems to have stepped in. Tobaldi and Del Monaco were both Italian. They shared a sound and a style of their generation which came out of the Italian Verismo style, and they were encouraged to debut young, uh, but the war interrupted that. They reemerged after the war, and they sang to a degree, at that point, on youth and vigor, while Delmonico slaved over a very muscular vocal technique that endeavored to anchor his larynx very low uh, to produce a big sound. The results were variable from night to night. When it worked, it was fantastic. Tobaldi never quite polished her technique. She sang largely on youth and the beauty of her ravishing sound. Uh, and uh, she had a tendency to flat on high notes. She had trouble with passage work. She had no trill. And yet, the voice was so beautiful and the personal warmth radiated so magnificently. Even though she was a rather stiff physical actress, she was a committed vocal actress. You could not help falling in love with Tibaldi, as you will see. She radiated warmth and humanity as a performer. We're going to watch this duo in a 1961 uh, Andrea Chenier duet that was filmed in Japan. This was captured, I would say, at the very last moment of Tibaldi's prime. Uh, the next year, she started to run into kind of serious vocal trouble. Delmonico, always passionate, is in fine form as well. And their commitment together is really something wonderful to behold. I find her absolutely 
magnetic. So this is the Act Two duet from Giordano's Andrea Chenier from 1961. <laughs>
and after Toscanini declared to Baldi's the voice of an angel, she became the queen of La Scala, that is, until a usurper arrived to open the season in Verdi's Vespri Siciliani in 1951, causing a sensation with her ample voice and astounding technique. Tobaldi recouped opening 53-54 as La Vallée, but after she fled to the Met, which became her artistic home, while this odd non-Italian, called La Greca by her detractors, and far worse, continued to sing an astonishing variety of roles uh, before she burned out vocally, and this, of course, was Maria Callas. Callas's ability to create magic as varied as Mozart's abduction from the Seraglio to Bellini's La Sunambula to Cherubini's Medea to Giordano's Fedora, her riveting stage presence won her fanatic supporters and critics who worshipped her, while her unconventional sound earned her violent detractors whose catcalls interrupted her performances. While Tibaldi was clearly a 20th century product, Callas seemed to be some sort of amazing magical throwback to the golden age of bel canto and vocal virtuosity. Uh, and once she dropped 70 pounds to real elegance and glamour. Now, as a duo member, Callas is known for her partnership with Giuseppe Di Stefano, but also for one with Tito Gobi. He, uh, and the baritone appeared a number of times together in the two recordings of Tosca and the famous, of course, legendary video from Covent Garden of Act Two have become the standard by which all Toscas should be uh, measured and are, actually. Uh, in looking at Callas this week and next, though, I've decided to turn from the obvious choice with Gobi, for instance, um, which is Tosca, and from the obvious choice with Di Stefano of Lucia Traviata Ballo in Mascara, the works uh, in which they are most well known, and to, to turn to roles that display the beauty of their artistry in roles they never sang together on stage, or as in the case of, of uh, Callas next week, a role she never even sang except in the recording studio. Today we are going to be listening to Gobi in the great act two duet from Verdi's Rigoletto. Gobi sang Rigoletto for decades, even made a film of the opera in 1947. Kala sang Gilda only two times in her entire career in Mexico City in 1952. Three years later, EMI paired them in the opera along with Di Stefano as the Duke and Kala's mentor, the fabulous conductor, Tulio Serafina, on the podium. Kala, when she relates to her father, the story of Gilda's seduction, there is such a heartbreaking poignancy, such a tear in the voice, but Gobi manages really almost to top it with a soft-floated Piangi Fanciulla weep daughter tenderly spun out on the most flawless legato. After Monteroni breaks the spell as he's led off to prison protesting that after the Duke has raped his daughter, he still lives on happily, uh, Gobi begins the, oh no, there's going to be vengeance, the Cimendetta duet, uh, the Cabaletta section of this long duet. And Seraphine increases, notice this when you hear it, there's a heartbeat pulse, bump, 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 that uh, Seraphine increases very sneakily during the course of the Cabaletta until it's really, it reaches an incredible kind of frantic insistence bit by bit. And then Callas crowns it all by interpolating a high E flat. So uh, it's a very beautifully artistic and yet 
incredibly committed, dramatic rendition of this act two duet finale from Verdi's uh, Rigoletto. This is from 1955. Oh, 
today involves a partnership of two kindred spirits from the same country whose on-stage and vocal chemistry was something to behold. By the time the circus known as the Three Tenors rolled around, Jose Carreras had overcome a serious illness that uh, drained his stamina and affected his voice. Truth be told, however, uh, Carreras was already experiencing some vocal decline before the illness due to his technical approach of singing, which was open, that is to say, bringing his middle register too high without uh, making a transition through the passaggio to accommodate the high notes. Uh, it's somewhat like belting, actually. And also, he took on heavy roles uh, like Kalaf in Turandot, and his was essentially a lyric instrument. So Jose, uh, Jose's star burned brightly, but briefly. However, for me, of those three tenors, from the mid-70s to the late 70s, in terms of vocal and physical allure and flexible phrasing and dynamic control, Carreras was the one. When his Catalan compatriot, Montserrat Caballé, became a star in 1965, she was a champion for him. And by the 1970s, they were appearing together with a great deal of regularity. And this went on, well, in terms of their prime vocally, uh, almost a decade. Caballé and Carreras were particularly known for their joint appearances in Chilea's pot boiler, Adriana Le Couvreur. They sang it all over the place, including at the Met. And uh, a pirate video from Japanese TV surfaced, uh, and another one from uh, Nice, from French television. Uh, we're going to watch a chunk of the death scene of Adriana from the Japanese one. Uh, those of you who've been in these classes before, you know that I love Verismo and uh, great singers of the Verismo repertoire. We've listened to Magdo Olivero and Magdo Olivero, Renata Scotto, Aprile Milo were all great Adrianas in our time. I was privileged to direct a semi-staging of Adriana at Carnegie Hall for Eve Queller, starring Aprile, who was absolutely brilliant in it. The story of the opera is based, actually, on the real life and death of the real Adrien Le Couvreur, the great early 18th century tragedian 
of the Comédie Française, the love rivalry in the opera, as it was in real life, uh, it was between uh, Adrien and the Duchess of Bouillon, Adriana and the Principessa di Bouillon in the opera. Uh, in real life, they were both in love with Maurice de Saxe in the opera Maurizio. Maurizio is pretender to the throne of Poland, which seems somehow quite appropriate for tenor. Although Adriana prevails in the end in terms of winning Maurizio's love and causing him to dump the princess, the princess wins ultimately as she kills Adriana by sending her a posy of poison violets, pretending they're from Maurizio. Yes, Adriana dies of terminal poison violets. Actually, this is not so far off what really happened. In real life, uh, the Duchess had this abbe who was kind of her sidekick. He was in love with one of her male servants, and so he would do anything she wanted. So she had uh, poison lozenges made, which she put in a box and gave to the abbe to take to the real actress, Adrienne, in the theater. On the way, the abbe got cold feet, and he went to the police and turned them over to the police, who promptly arrested him. <laughs> the Duchess was a woman of influence. And interestingly, uh, shortly after the lozenge incident, Adrien, the real Adrien, passed away from dysentery, which she had had since childhood. She had a poverty-stricken childhood. And so she died so closely to the lozenge thing that this great legend evolved that she had, in fact, been killed by the poison lozenges of the Duchess of Bouillon. That made for potent drama for a play. So Racine wrote this great play, Adrien Le Couvreur, which then was a vehicle for Duza and Bernhardt, and then became Chilea's opera, which has become a vehicle for all kinds of divas. Uh, Adrienne's uh, story we're going to begin in Act 4. She has uh, assumed that she has been kind of left for the princess by this uh, Maurizio, who is an opportunist politically, and she's uh, then suddenly receives this little box with a posy of violets in it with his card. So she takes this as a sign that he's breaking up with her by sending back the violets since she had given them to him backstage at the theater in the first place. She doesn't know that the violets are laced with mystery violet poison. And so she sings this beautiful aria, Poveri Fiori, Poor Flowers, over the violets. Of course, the more she breathes, the more she inhales, the more she inhales, the more poison she gets. But at that moment, when she finishes, Maurizio returns to her. She's in the company of her faithful stage manager, Michonet, the baritone, nice guy role. And uh, he hasn't broken up with her. Maurizio, in fact, proposes that they get married. And she's so deeply moved, she forgives him for what she assumed was his coldness in this horrible gesture, which he doesn't know about. He doesn't know about the violets. So they have the makings of a love duet until, uh-oh, <laughs> the poison sets in, and she begins to become very weak. And Maurizio is very concerned, so Michonet comes in. He says, get her a doctor. Michonet says, oh, you know, there were these flowers that came and I suspect they were from a rivale, a rival. 
So she begins to hallucinate, and she imagines that she is uh, Melpomene, the Greek goddess who was the muse of tragedy. And then she dies gently in Maurizio's arms, surrounded by the two men who love her, Michonne and Maurizio. So we're going to watch uh, the death scene from Adriana Lecouvreur, starring the great Montserrat Caballé and Jose Carreras at his absolute peak.
Iris Siff, discussing the work of some of the most iconic and dazzling opera duos. If you enjoyed this episode, tune in next week for part two of three in the Opera Duo series. For more information about all Guild programming, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>